Pursuing exactly what you want to do is hard. Besides our own mental obstacles, there are societal ones. We talked to Belinda Smith Sullivan about achieving her goals, including working for a global food company, writing cookbooks, and more. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today at the annual conference of Les Dames d'Escoffier International in Louisville, Kentucky. My guest is Chef Belinda Smith-Sullivan, chef, cookbook author, spice blends entrepreneur, and commercial rated pilot. I love that part. So welcome. Welcome, Belinda. Thank you. So I'm interested in knowing how you got involved in food. How I got involved in food. Okay. Well, first of all, I have to tell you, I come from a very, very large family, and I have been cooking since I was seven years old. My mother's from a family of 19. My dad is from a family of 17. Oh my. All of my. You have a lot of cousins. Oh yeah, lots of cousins. Most I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) You could be a cousin for all I know. That's true. But I'm from a family of, they, everyone cooks, even the men, Mm -hmm. they all cook. And I've been hanging around all of my especially my aunts and my uncles and my grandmother in the kitchen since I was seven. And that's where I learned how to cook. Yeah, been doing it ever since. We used to spend all of our summers in Mississippi on my grandparents' farm. My grandparents were cotton sharecroppers in in the Delta of Mississippi. And uh, every summer, because my mother felt that all kids should spend time on a farm, Mm -hmm. we got shipped off from Chicago, Uh which is my hometown, and we'd take that train ride down to the, as I said, the Delta of Mississippi and spend the summer with my grandparents. And while all the men were out in the field, working the fields, picking cotton, doing that sort of thing, I helped my grandmother in the kitchen. Oh. You know, I was her little helper, you know, get me this, get me that. And all of a sudden that became a curiosity for me. Well, grandma, what are you putting in there? Why are you putting that in there? And of course she thought I asked way too many of questions. Course. Of course. <laughs> but eventually she would get a chair and, you know, let me belly up to the stove and, and stir, stir the pots. Uh-huh. And I have to tell you this, and this is funny, and I never forget it. And whenever I see one, I'm amazed. Uh, she had a wood-burning stove. And I was always amazed at how, when my mom cooked at home, the temperature had to be set to a certain thing. Mm-hmm. 350, if you're baking cakes, that kind of thing. And I never would ask my grandma, how do you know when the oven's ready? Uh-huh, uh-huh. She just knew, or she, better than knew, she could just tell, I guess, by smell when the cakes were ready. Uh, it didn't yes. matter if it was 400 degrees, if it was 325 or so. But she and just, she adapted. Yeah, yes, she adapted. Uh-huh. You know, she could, uh, the so-and-so is ready. Uh-huh. Like, how does she do that, you know? But I, I would bet that the timing was different every time because the temperature exactly. wasn't exactly the same. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah that's a skill. Yeah. yeah, I've done things like we visited Sullivan's University yesterday and we went to this old plantation home and they were showing us around the kitchen 
and they had this item in there. And everyone's looking at it, and I said, I know exactly what that is, because that was my job every night. It was a, a churn for butter. Oh. And I knew what it was, because, as, again, when we were kids, we each had a chore on the mm-hmm. farm, and at nighttime, at 6 o'clock after dinner, I had to churn the butter. Or for the next churn the day. milk, and, you know, and then it turns into butter. Uh-huh. And I would sit on that stool and do churn, crying the entire time. But I did it. And I was the only one yesterday who knew what that thing was. That was, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I kind of have to smile to myself when I see relics like that from the past, like my grandma's wood burning stove. And there's one on display in the Aiken Museum, uh-huh. where I just moved from Aiken, South Carolina. And then seeing that churn, and seeing a lot of other little farmhouse gadgets that mm-hmm. were used that are no longer used. Right. But yet, I know what they are. And thanks to my mom, because she made sure that we spent time on the farm. Well, and it also means that you have a, a more intimacy with the food production. Because if you just bought butter in the grocery store and it comes in a stick, yes, that's the only thing you know. Absolutely. And again, that was my mom's rationing. That she thought, or rationale, because she thought that kids should know where their food comes from. Right. You know, I've until we just moved... Uh, last year, I lived for 20 years in the country, outside of Aiken, South Carolina, and I had a huge garden. I, and my friends would say, why do you do that? You know, uh-huh. there's just you and your husband, and you grow this garden. But I fed the neighborhood. It, I was the one that people looked to when summertime came for the cucumbers, for the fresh tomatoes, for their tomato sandwiches, and that yes, sort of thing. Yes. And that's what I said. I, they called me Farmer B. Uh, because I literally fed the neighborhood. Yes. Yeah, but yes. I just I just love growing things like um, plants in my house, kill them within two days. <laughs> but I can grow vegetables. Uh-huh. And there's something so rewarding about that. I enjoy getting up at 5.30 in the morning in the summer to go out and do the weeding and things like that. And the reason you get up so early is because it gets hot. Right. So you want to get all that out of the way. But it's refreshing. It's a great way to start your day. And it's so fulfilling. <coughs> Bless you. To know that you grew this thing. You know, yes, yes. So. And it tastes better. Oh, it tastes so better Bert, first because you did it. Yes. But also because it does objectively taste better. You know something? I don't... I love salads. Mm-hmm. I don't buy tomatoes anymore. I've learned how to make tomato-less salads because I remember how they taste when I grew them. Uh-huh. And no matter how fresh they may be in the supermarket, they're not just go out there right now and pick it in. Slice it's it up into a warm in the sun. yeah. While it's still yeah. warm, oh, yeah. I, there's nothing like it. <laughs> yes. No, you want to just bite it right when you pull yeah. it off the vine. And I got to tell you this: don't tell anyone. <laughs> but we did that when we were kids. Uh huh. My grandmother's. I had a huge garden in Aiken. My grandmother had an acre garden. Oh wow! It was huge, and we kids we used to steal the salt shaker and go out in the garden and eat tomatoes right off the vine. And sprinkle salt on them. And to this day, I still love doing that. <laughs> as soon as I bring them in the house, I'll grab one, get the salt shaker, and, uh-huh. you know, eat it. Uh-huh. Yes. So many, wow, all habits. <laughs> my, my son, my son would go to my grand, to my parents' house, and mm. they had, they were growing sweet peppers. Mm, and okay. they had a lot of red ones mm-hmm. because... I'm half Sicilian, and my mother's fully Sicilian, Mm -hmm. and so there were always red peppers roasted and all these things to do with red Mm -hmm. peppers. So my mother grew them, 
And my son used to do that with red peppers. He'd go out and pick one and just eat it oh, right yeah. there. Yeah. That was his no, you, favorite. You mean the bell peppers? Bell peppers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I grew yeah. those too. I grew, oh my God. I didn't grow green ones. Mm-hmm. I like the red. Uh-huh. I like. I had purple, uh-huh. yellow, orange. Uh-huh. And you're right. J- just like tomatoes, they are so much fresher when you when pick you them right off the vine. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Totally. Totally. Yeah. My grandmother would watch my father. My father was from North Louisiana, and so he was a big fan of um, pimento cheese. Okay. And my mother didn't grow up eating pimento mm-hmm. cheese, and it's not that big of a thing in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. But my father knew a gas station when people used to sell stuff out of gas, you know, the, oh, the, yeah. the gas station. He knew the, the best gas station in New Orleans mm-hmm. where he could buy the pimento cheese that mm-hmm. he liked. And my grandmother was always offended because the pimento cheese was made with canned pimentos. And my grandmother said, I make these pimentos all the time. She would do them over the stove and Mm -hmm. blister them and all that. And then she would put them in olive oil with Mm -hmm. garlic and Mm -hmm. stuff. And she'd say, I'm going to start making your pimento cheese because I just cannot abide the fact that you're eating canned pimentos. Mm And so she would chop them up chop small, them up. like mm-hmm. the little ones in the cans, and make his pimento cheese. And of course, she had to add Parmesan because you couldn't just use yeah, cheddar or something. And anyway, that was that was my grandmother's take on, mm-hmm. on you know, being fresh. Uh huh. Yeah. Wow, talk about being fresh. My grandmother didn't buy. Well, there are only two things that she go to the grocery. Uh-huh. Yeah, grocery for. And you only went on Saturday. I mean, Sunday through, you know, Saturday morning, you you didn't leave the farm. But every Saturday evening, you'd go shopping. Okay. Or she used to call it, she'd go trading. Uh-huh. She called it, you know, who do you uh-huh. trade with, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. That was the term. The only two things she ever bought. A 10-pound bag of sugar and a 20-pound sack of flour. Flour. Because, of course, you ate biscuits and some kind of bread every day. Yes. That's yes. the only thing she bought. Did she buy rice or did she grow rice? You know, in Mississippi, we weren't big rice eaters. Rice oh, eaters. Okay. We, potatoes. Potatoes. Okay. With every meal. And she, of course, grew them. Sweet potatoes, white potatoes. Exactly. But, yeah. Uh, so I was never raised, even in Chicago, I was never raised with that concept of going and buying anything canned. Uh-huh. Not even frozen. Unless my mother froze it herself. Right, right. Or preserved it. Yes. Preserving yes. is a huge deal. Yes. And to this day, I like making, you know, I like preserving things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but I was never one for eating anything out of a can. Well, so how did you decide to make this your profession? Well, or again, professionalize it. Because yes. I've been cooking, you know, all my life, all my life, all of my childhood. Uh huh. So I went off to college, went to corporate America you know, worked all those years, but always had in the back of my mind that someday I'd do this. Uh-huh. Well, as fate would have it, I ret- um, retired from the Coca-Cola company. Uh-huh. And uh, we, my last assignment with the Coca-Cola company was in South Africa. We spent three years there. Mm, that I was sounds the, wonderful. <laughs> it, it was. It was a wonderful experience. I was the global training manager for all of Africa. When you were there, was it there still apartheid? Apartheid had just ended. Okay. Okay. So I was there for three years, and we repatriated. That's what they call it. Repatriated back to Atlanta, and I because our because at that time, the company had gone through a strategic organizational realignment. I love saying that. <laughs> it meant we got a new 
CEO, <laughs> and of course they make their new, their changes. Uh -huh. And the division I was attached to, which was the learning consortium, like Coca-Cola University, uh -huh. was totally eliminated because he felt that that was something that could be outsourced. Okay. So in outsourcing that, I repatriated to no position, no no division to oh, repatriate to. Yes. Uh -huh. So I separated from the Coca-Cola company, and uh, so you know I spent about three months, three four months. Mm. Uh -huh. Not one, you know, wondering what am I going to do next, you know, yep. when, I, when I grow up. Finally, my husband said, okay, I'm tired of this. He says, ever since I've known you, you said, you've, you know, you told me that if you had it to do someday, that you would go to culinary school. He says, so just do it. I said, hmm, you're right. I picked up the phone the next morning and called Johnson & Wells. Okay. And... There you go. That was the, the beginning of a new career. And you know something, Liz? I've never looked back. That's if anything, exciting. I've said to myself, why didn't I do this sooner? <laughs> well, I mean, you probably needed that other experience yes. to really appreciate this because mm -hmm. you would perhaps not have had quite the sophistication and the life experience to bring to it. Yeah that you added besides your childhood experience. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And you know, we several of us were talking at dinner last night and we were saying that we everyone come from a, a corporate background and we were saying it's so important we think that we did that we have that corporate experience. Right. Because if nothing else it you know you, you learn other business skills that you wouldn't otherwise. Right. right. You know, you exactly. learn those 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 hard those hard skills like problem solving and you know long range planning and you know, things like that. how how to get along with others. Well, <laughs> and all the travel that you did, sure. that exposes you to so many different ideas mm -hmm. and things and different cultures. And sure. so that's, that's also something that I think makes, when you bring that to food, mm -hmm. it means you're open to all those new flavors and tastes and yeah. ways to do things that or beyond what you grew up with. You well, know. you know, it's funny that you should say that because my first job out of college, I was, in those days, we were called stewardesses. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was a stewardess. I had never really ventured outside of my little world of the south side of Chicago or my parents, my grandparents' farm. So what being a stewardess did for me, aside from the travel, it was the exposure to other cuisines. Mm -hmm. I remember my first vacation, I went by myself to Athens, Greece. Thought my mother was gonna have a heart attack. <laughs> but I discovered this thing called feta cheese. Oh my God, to this day, you can't give me enough feta. Uh -huh. I mean, I want feta on everything. <laughs> I'd make ice cream out of feta if I could figure out a way to do it. And I'm sure there is, <laughs> I'll work on that one. But yeah, but it, everywhere I went became an eating experience for me. And friends come to me now, friends and family, and everyone makes fun of this, but they always seek my counsel. Wherever they're going, they'll always ask me, so what should I eat when I'm there? Because they know, I know, I know every city, every country, every whatever, by the food <laughs> and the wine. Of course, of course. And so I'm always, you know, it's like, it's almost like an obsession with me. Uh -huh. You know, I want to go someplace, want to go to, you know, Vienna. Not particularly for Vienna, but see what kind of food they have there. Right, you know, like, right. You know, like yes. what's what's good. You know, what are people eating and mm -hmm. why? And 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 if I can spend enough time asking someone, anyone, how do you make it? You know, right. give me your recipe for right. this thing. Right. Yes. Yes. So. Absolutely. So, what made you decide also to write about food? 
again, I went to culinary school and I was what they called a non-traditional student. Mm -hmm. You know what that means. Yes. I was older than everyone right. else. Exactly. <laughs> I knew that I was never going to work in a restaurant. Uh-huh. Yeah. So my vision was I went to culinary school to learn all the tools, to learn all the techniques, to write cookbooks. So the first day I stepped foot at Johnston, you know, in Johnston and Wells, I knew I was, was going to be a food writer. Okay. and write cookbooks. Okay. And every again, everyone laughed at me, the chef instructors. The dean of students called me in one day, had me shut the door, sit down, and he said, if you don't mind me saying this on your podcast, he said, what the hell are you doing here? He says, at your age, surely you're not going to work in a restaurant. And I said, no, 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 Dean, I'm not. I said, I'm going to write cookbooks. And he looked at me and he said, if it was that easy, I'd be doing it. <laughs> okay, sir, can I go back to class now? You know. Right. So I did have the opportunity to go back to visit last summer uh -huh. with my three cookbooks in my arm. And I said, Dean, do you remember telling me that this was easy? That It was the same day. Yes, right? same day. Yes. Uh and he just looked at me. <laughs> and he said, thanks for coming. So I took that as my clue to leave. But I, I, I had to get that in there. Well, yeah. And I think that there's so much richness in food. There's so many different things that you can do. Mm -hmm. You can't just say everybody's gonna go work in a restaurant. I know. Uh, and, and so I, I think you're totally, totally right. People ask me all the time. First thing they do, they, they ask me when they find out I'm a chef, oh, where's your restaurant? Uh -huh. I have uh -huh. to explain to them, maybe only 10% of people who are chefs work in restaurants or have a restaurant. Most people do something else. The majority of chefs work in, and you never think about this, research and development for food companies. That's right. That's yeah. where the majority of chefs work. And then you have those who, are, who write cookbooks, who are food writers, who are Food Network stars, which everyone <laughs> wants to be. <laughs> I remember when I was in culinary school, the two worst students in my lab classes all they wanted to be, do was be Food Network stars. And neither of them could cook. That's what amazed me. If, if they knew how to cook, I would have been blown, you know. Sure. But I, I, I was just shocked. That's and all they talked about was getting on the Food Network, and they couldn't cook. But, you know. And have they? No. Okay. But oh, now what I have learned, uh -huh. <laughs> without offending anyone, is that what lands you a spot on, on the Food on the food shows right. is more personality than and your ability to cook. Because no one is tasting what you're making. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so, it has to look okay. Yeah, as long as it looks good. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but if that's your aspiration, go for it. Right. Oh, sure. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. So, and how did you decide what to write about? Because you making your own choices about writing books, mm -hmm. and so how did you decide what things you thought? Well, the to first write about? book was really easy. Okay, because I was living in on a property. I call it the farm outside of Aiken, South Carolina. Okay, in Peach Country, Edgefield uh, County, South Carolina. Yeah, and uh, I had all these peaches around me, and I was in search of a peach cookbook because I wanted to. I mean, I love peaches. It's my favorite fruit, and I can just eat them all day long. But I said, they, you have to be able to do other things right, with, right. with these peaches. So right. I went out Looking. searching for a cookbook, uh -huh. and there wasn't one. So I thought, okay, first cookbook. So I, it took me seven years. No one was interested. 
I went to, I, you know, contacted editors, publishers. They said, who's interested in a peach cookbook? All people want to do is eat peaches. I said, well, I beg to differ on that. Finally, I met my publisher, and she said, you know, I love this idea. Uh, so yes. you just never know. That's right. You That's know? right. It, maybe, maybe before it wasn't the time for it, uh-huh. but now all of a sudden it was time. Uh-huh. And, some, and it's still my best-selling book. People are still buying it. Probably because every year peaches come around again. That's right. You know, it's right. it's a forever kind of a fruit. Yes. You know, and yes. And, and every summer, I, the sales spike. <laughs> it's not a trendy book. Right. It's one of those uh, evergreen books. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's exactly the word Natalie used for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And then the others. Okay. There's just something so interesting about all the books. Uh huh. I was thinking what my second book was going to be and I remembered back to the days when I lived in New York mm-hmm. as, a, as a new little thriving stewardess I remember I lived in a six floor walk-up apartment oh, if you can imagine that good for your legs six but... floor walk-up <laughs> that's why I think I've never weighed more than you know 95 pounds but so I used to invite the only way I could get people to get to home to my apartment is to feed them uh-huh. so I started this brunch thing on Sundays so I could get my friends to come every Sunday walk up the six flights of stairs to have brunch with me. Uh-huh. And so I said, that's what I'm going to write about. Sort of like a mini mem- memoir. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, just write about brunch and why I love brunch so much and how it's my favorite form of entertaining uh-huh. and how I could get people to walk up six flights of sto- stairs to do it. Right. Yeah, so that's how Let's Brunch came about. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, and the other one? The, uh, the Southern Sugar. Yes. I just... When I applied to culinary school, I actually applied for baking and pastry. Oh, okay. But they said there's a two-year wait for that. I said, I don't think I have two more years I can waste. So I said, I'll, I'll take culinary. Best choice I ever made because it gave me a more well-rounded um, education. Education, culinary mm-hmm. education. But I still, baking and pastry, ah, that's at my core. Uh-huh. You know, I love that. Uh, and so Southern Sugar was born. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And what I really tried to do with Southern Sugar, I wanted to incorporate something from every Southern state. Uh huh. So that was my goal for that, and and I managed to. I was I was surprised, but every state is known for you know some, something different. Something different. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny because, the, you, yes, you have a copy of Southern Sugar. Yes. The cake that's on the cover is the Kentucky Blackberry Jam Cake. Uh huh. And um, someone said to me, Oh, where's where's that from? I said, It's from Kentucky. Someone pulled me aside and they said, Belinda, you do know that Kentucky is not technically a southern state. I said, oops. <laughs> I always thought it was. Well, you know, we have that issue mm-hmm. with the Southern Food and Beverage Museum mm-hmm. and what we consider the South. Mm-hmm. And so we decided that we were just abandoning all the Civil War uh, definitions yeah. of what the South is. Mm-hmm. And we, there was a movement after World War II called the New South. Mm-hmm. And it was related to Eisenhower coming back from World War II and saying, we need to have um, an Autobahn-type system because he thought that that was something that was really mm-hmm. a good idea that mm-hmm. they had in Germany. So he started the interstate mm-hmm. system. And what he did was he created four quadrants in the country to work on the interstate systems systematically, not just look at the whole country at once. Mm -hmm. And so that southeastern quadrant has become our south. Okay. And 
that way you take politics out of it. Who cares whether Kentucky was in this side or that yeah. side of the Civil War? Mm-hmm. When you because it, it's right here, and food doesn't know political boundaries or I, anything that's like right. that. Yeah. And so we're actually talking about adding Puerto Rico into our South because uh, everyone there is an American citizen. You're Mm -hmm. born an American citizen, even if it's not a state. So we decided we should include Puerto Rico. So we're working on that. And where else could it be? But in that Southeastern quadrant, Mm -hmm. it certainly doesn't fit in the Northwest. And uh, and it, it's so much more convenient than worrying about mm-hmm. the Mason Dixon yeah. line. I know. So it's like every time someone asks me about the cover and I say, well, it's a Kentucky blackberry jam cake. And then I wait to see if they're going <laughs> to give me the same comment. <laughs> but I was, I was just totally shocked. I said, it's not? Are you sure? <laughs> and and the, technically, they were right. They were right. Sure. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that that's the only definition of the sound. That's right. You're right. Yeah. And so that's kind of my thing. I'm ready whenever anybody mm-hmm. brings that up. So I'm sharing that with Good, you. Good, thank you, because I didn't know that. I knew that uh, President Eisenhower was, was responsible for the interstate system, but I didn't know that that's how he did it. It was divided into huh. quadrants, and it's not that it doesn't connect all the way across right. or whatever, but it made it a, a, a something that you could have, like, all of it being done at the same time yeah. because you had broken it up. You You're know? right. Unlike the railroads where they started at one end and it and was years before the exactly. <laughs> the other side. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So anyway, that to me is um, the new south. The new south. The new south. All right. Now, this is the exciting part. Tell me about becoming a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I told you, my first job out of college, I was a stewardess. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I still like that name, by the way. I, I guess it's because that's what we were called. Uh-huh. Now, flight attendant, eh, it's okay, but I, I like the word stewardess, although it does date me. Yes, yes. <laughs> I say, how old yes. are you anyway? <laughs> but I had the opportunity to fly with a gentleman, mm-hmm. Captain David Harris. He was the first African-American pilot to fly for the airlines. Oh, okay. And we flew for the, you know, we flew for American. Yes. And I had the opportunity to, to meet and fly with him and meeting him. It was my aha moment. I said to myself, oh my God, I, you know, I'm from the south side of Chicago. Uh-huh. Never you know, known a, or seen a black pilot before. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I said, someday I'm gonna do that too. I said, if I ever get the money, I'm gonna take flying lessons. Well, lo and behold, it would take me 25 years. Uh-huh. And I woke up one morning and my husband says, what do you want for your birthday? I said, pilot's lessons. So he took me out to the airport. He bought me one of those discovery flights. Uh-huh. It took me up. I was hooked. Oh, wow. So that's how I became a pilot. I became a private pilot. And uh, then I thought to myself, you know, if you're going to be responsible, you know, fly responsibly, you should at least get your instrument rating. Mm-hmm. So I got that. And I said, you know, I should get a commercial rating as well because that will improve, improve my proficiency. And I thought, you know. Those twin engines, they fly a lot faster than the single engines. So I got my multi-engine rating. So now I'm like, what am I going to do with all of this stuff? So I said, I'll become a flight instructor. So I went and I got my flight instructor certificate. Oh, wow. So I actually um, teach people how to fly. (laughs) That is so cool. (laughs) And you know, Liz, I tell you a little secret. Again, just between us. Uh Don't tell anybody. Right, right. Everyone kept telling me, again, you've known me for a while, Mm -hmm. I'm a tiny little thing. 
people were always telling me, you can't do this because uh-huh. Uh-huh. you're too small. You're a girl. You're... Yes. And every time, the best way to get me to do something is to tell me I can't do it. Oh, my God, it's on now. So my husband, he knows never to say those words to me. <laughs> you want to be an astronaut? Go for it. Right, you know, right. Not, not, you can't because, you know, I'll be off to NASA. Right, right, right. <laughs> Give you that challenge. Yeah, dude. Yes. Don't, yes. don't ever tell me I can't do something. Because that's, yeah. And so that's how I, in fact, where we lived in uh-huh. Aiken, I keep telling you about, uh-huh. it was on a private airport. That's why we moved there. Oh, wow. It was a private airport out in the middle of nowhere. Okay. And so it was a fun place to live because everyone, all of our neighbors, were also pilots. Oh, so that, was, that is interesting. Yeah. Yes. I called it Disneyland for adults because that's exactly what it was. Everybody lived with their airplanes, and we would all go out and flying together and stuff like and that. Where's and where's the farthest that you've gone flying? Well, the farthest? Well, two things. One, when I was dating my husband, uh-huh. and we met in New Orleans. Okay. I flew him to the Bahamas for vacation. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I tell him all the time, I said, I can't believe you you did that. I said, I could have killed you. <laughs> he said, thank God you didn't. <laughs> he said, I, I knew I wanted to marry you. He said, I just wanted to see if you'd kill me or not. You know? Right. But right. Uh, yeah, we went there, and he, he was so impressed. <laughs> But so we did that together, and I flew in the Air Race Classic. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's an all-women's cross-country air race. It used to be called, way back in the 30s when it was started, the Powder Puff Derby. Yes, yes. And now it's, you know, they've renamed it the Air Race Classic. Well... And I flew that. The the, Le Dames Discoffier International was created because women couldn't belong to... Belong to to, uh, Les Amis Discoffier. that's right. Sure. So... Yes, it started out that way. Yes, yes, yes. yes. But uh, so, so that was fun. It was. I think we went. They call it cross country, but it's not. You know, from New York to L.A., it crisscrosses. So the year I flew it, it started in Santa Fe, went to Midland, Texas, Oklahoma, Ogala, Nebraska, Girardeau, Missouri, Rome, Georgia, and then it ended at uh, in right outside of Cleveland. Yes. So it was about twenty. 500 statute miles uh-huh. with just uh, me and my best friend who's also a pilot and we were there were 50 airplanes uh-huh. and our goal was just to finish, finish. the race yes and uh-huh. we did 10 planes did not but we finished you would have thought we won <laughs> because as far as we were concerned we met our you, goal you did yes. of, of finishing the race so we won <laughs> yes yes oh that's that's really exciting yeah i love that all right i want to ask you one more question which is a little more um uh, it, it's like not food related, okay. but I am very interested in what you observed because you were like a witness to history. You said that our apartheid had just ended in, um, in South, in South Africa, Africa mm-hmm. when you were there. Was it fascinating to watch the changes happen? Was it, was it scary? What, what would you say it was? Well, Liz, I can tell you this. You said, watch the changes. There really weren't any changes. Okay. It, even though people were now free to do what they wanted to do, uh-huh. they still didn't have the money. Uh-huh. 97% of the wealth is still owned by 3% of the population. And that population is white. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, to be honest with you, it was devastating for me. Um, 
at the end of my three years, I was asked if I wanted to stay another year. I couldn't do it. I just, I, I really actually fell into a deep depression while I was there, just observing everything around me. Because again, it, the poverty, I told my husband, I said, I'll never complain again. I said, the poorest people I've seen in the US aren't as poor as some of these people. Homeless, gangs of homeless boys, seven to 14, 15 years old, running around in packs, like almost like animals, trying to survive. It was just, it was just uh, disheartening. I really, I, I don't mind telling you, I'd come home every day and the first thing I wanted was a glass of wine because I just needed to wash everything I'd seen away that day yeah. off of myself, yeah. you know, and try to forget, but I, but, but I couldn't. Of course Because not. every time yeah. you left your house, it was just there, you know, in your, in your face. And I, I just couldn't take it anymore. Now I can tell you this, beautiful country, beautiful people, yeah. but the inequity of, of wealth, people living in places that, oh my goodness, I couldn't even imagine shacks, not even sh- structured shacks, plywood, you know, just constructed out of anything that you could find. Right, right. Yeah. I, now, we left in 2003. I hope it's not like that anymore. Mm-hmm. I can only hope that it's gotten better. But if you think apartheid ended somewhere in the late 90s, mm-hmm. when we got, I get there in 99, mm-hmm. yeah, it was just, I don't know what to say. Yeah. There weren't any changes as far as I could see. Not visual, not visual changes. Just now you didn't have to have a little passport, passport to go from, you know, neighborhood to neighborhood. Right. You could go anywhere you wanted, but right. you didn't have a car, so were you going to walk? Yeah. You know, people couldn't even afford bikes. You'd see people riding bikes that you think, oh my God, you need to get off of that because that's not safe. Right. You see, it's going to fall apart any minute. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That must have been really hard. Yeah. It, it really was because I wanted, there was so much I wanted to do for people, uh-huh. but I couldn't. I mean, I, I could only do so much. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I would, you know, driving home in the evening, and people, they come up to your car and they're begging. And some days I just open up my wallet, crack the window a little bit and just give them everything, you know? Yeah. But it didn't do any good. Right, right. That was one person. Right. There were millions of others. Right, right. You yeah. know, so yeah. I just, and it still makes me sad right now to think about it. Yes. Like yes. I said, and I, I don't complain anymore. Uh-huh. I don't complain about my life because no matter what I'm going through, I have it so much better than the stuff that I've seen mm-hmm. happen and happening in, in places like South Africa. And of course, I was responsible for all of Africa, so I've traveled to most of the countries. Uh-huh. As I say, same old day, same soup. You know, yeah. different day, same soup. Uh-huh. You know, kind of thing, so. I, I, I haven't traveled in Africa very much. I've been to Egypt, Morocco, and Guinea. Mm. And my son was in the Peace Corps in Guinea, mm-hmm. and so we went to see him. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a lot of poverty in, in Guinea, but it was a black-ruled country. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so the, the apartheid that wasn't there, mm-hmm. you know, it was just yes. the, whatever the country could be. Sure. And there was, what do you call them, a kleptocrat as uh, the leader, mm-hmm. uh, but... It was, 
it, it was, um, and he's, he's dead now, so it doesn't matter, but, and this, the country had aluminum, so it was one of the few places that had bauxite, and so there was potential with this natural resource mm -hmm. for the country to become something different than having a leader who practically thought he owned all the bauxite, you know. But but what you're describing, that where there are class differences and yeah. all the wealth was held by, you know, mm -hmm. just this one little yeah. group was not there. Well, what had happened I was, and I'm sure you know this, first of all, right after apartheid ended, a lot of the people left. They took their monies and they, and they, left. they left the country. Mm -hmm. But those who stayed, on paper, things may have been different, but in terms of mindset, attitudes, and everything, nothing yeah. had yeah. changed. Yeah. Well, now we'll end on that note. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank this you, is, This is, I'm, 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 you, you've inspired me to go home and make something out of peaches that, uh, <laughs> that's going to, I mean, I, I'm just thinking, we're talking about Africa, and I said I've been to Morocco, and I came back with this tagine sitting on my lap in the plane, mm -hmm. coming back with me, and I am going to make something with, I don't know, lamb or goat or something like that, and peaches, peaches. in that tagine. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you, you can use the canned peaches, canned or frozen. Okay. You can use yes. them. Yes. Yes. Perfect. Well, and Perfectly frozen acceptable. things are often good because they are frozen at the peak oh, of, yeah. of their mm -hmm. goodness. So. Mm -hmm. I always tell people if you have a choice between canned or frozen, choose the frozen. frozen. Yeah. 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 I definitely do yeah. that. Yeah. But I have a tagine also. I love it. Uh -huh. I keep it on top of the stove permanently, and it's always a conversation starter when yes. people come into the kitchen. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, thanks a lot. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, for more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.